Chapter 8, Part 2 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer, translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 8, Part 2 Strauss's First Life of Jesus. From the Triumphal Entry to the Resurrection, the difference between the synoptic and johannine narratives is so great that all attempts to harmonize them are to be rejected how are we to reconcile the statement of the synoptists that the ovation at the triumphal entry was offered by galileans who accompanied him with that of john according to which it was offered by a multitude from jerusalem which came out to welcome jesus who moreover according to john was not coming from galilee and jericho and escorted him into the city to suppose that there were two different triumphal entries is absurd but the decision between john and the synoptists is not based solely upon their representation of the facts the decisive consideration is found in the ideas by which they are respectively dominated john represents a more advanced stage of the mythopoic process inasmuch as he has substituted for the jewish messianic conception the greek metaphysical conception of the divine sonship and on the basis of his acquaintance with the alexandrian logos doctrine even makes jesus apply to himself the greek speculative conception of pre-existence the writer is aware of an already existing danger from the side of a gnostic docetism and has himself an apologetic christology to propound thus fighting the gnostics as a gnostic of another kind that he is free from eschatological conceptions is not from the historical point of view an advantage but very much the reverse he is not unacquainted with eschatology but deliberately transforms it endeavouring to substitute for the expectation of the second coming of christ as an external event of the future the thought of his inward presence the most decisive evidence of all is found in the farewell discourses and in the absence of all mention of the spiritual struggle in gethsemane the intention here is to show that jesus not only had a foreknowledge of his death but had long overcome it in anticipation and went to meet his tragic fate with perfect inward serenity that however is no historical narrative but the final stage of reverent idealization the question is decided the gospel of john is inferior to the synoptics as a historical source just in proportion as it is more strongly dominated than they by theological and apologetic interests it is true that the assignment of the dominant motives is for strauss's criticism mainly a matter of conjecture he cannot define in detail the attitude and tendency of this gospel because the development of dogma in the second century was still to a great extent obscure he himself admits that it was only subsequently through the labors of bauer that the positions which he had taken up in eighteen thirty five were rendered impregnable and yet it is true to say that johannine study has added in principle nothing new to what was said by strauss he recognized the decisive point with critical acumen he resigned the attempt to base a decision on a comparison of the historical data and allowed the theological character of the two lines of tradition to determine the question
Unless this is done, the debate is endless. For an able man who has sworn allegiance to John will always find a thousand ways in which the Johannine data can be reconciled with those of the synoptists, and is finally prepared to stake his life upon the exact point at which the missing account of the institution of the Lord's Supper must be inserted into the narrative. This changed estimate of John carries with it a reversal of the order in which the Gospels are supposed to have originated. Instead of John, Luke, Matthew, we have Matthew, Luke, and John. The first is last, and the last first. Strauss's unsophisticated instinct freed Matthew from the humiliating vassalage to which Schleiermacher's aesthetic had consigned him. The practice of differentiating between John and the synoptists, which, in the hands of Schleiermacher and Hase, had been an elegant amusement, now received unexpected support, and it at last became possible for the study of the life of Jesus to go forward. But no sooner had Strauss opened up the way than he closed it again by refusing to admit the priority of Mark. His attitude towards this gospel at once provokes opposition. For him, Mark is an epitomizing narrator, a mere satellite of Matthew with no independent light. His terse and graphic style makes on Strauss an impression of artificiality. He refuses to believe this evangelist when he says that, on the first day at Capernaum, the whole town, from Mark chapter 1 verse 33, came together before Peter's door, and that on other occasions, from Mark chapter 3 verse 20 and Mark chapter 6 verse 31, the press was so great that Jesus and his disciples had no leisure so much as to eat. He remarks, quote, All very improbable traits, the absence of which in Matthew is entirely to his advantage, for what else are they than legendary exaggerations? Close quote. In this criticism, he is at once with Schleiermacher, who, in his essay on Luke, speaks of the most unreal vividness of Mark, quote, which often gives his gospel an almost apocryphal aspect. Close quote. This prejudice against Mark has a twofold cause. In the first place, this gospel, with its graphic details, had rendered great service to the rationalistic explanation of miracle. Its description of the cure of the blind man at Bethsaida, from Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, whose eyes Jesus first anointed with spittle, whereupon he at first saw things dimly, and then, after he had felt the touch of the Lord's hand upon his eyes a second time, saw more clearly, was a veritable treasure-trove for rationalism. As Strauss is disposed to deal much more preemptorily with the rationalists than with the supernaturalists, he puts Mark upon his trial, as their accessory before the fact, and pronounces him a judgment which is not entirely unprejudiced. Moreover, it is not until the Gospels are looked at from the point of view of the plan of the history and the inner connection of events that the superiority of Mark is clearly realized. But this way of looking at the matter does not enter into Strauss's purview. On the contrary, he denies that there is any traceable connection of events at all, and confines his attention to determining the proportion of myth in the content of each separate narrative. Of the synoptic question, he does not, strictly speaking, take any account. 
that was partly due to the fact that when he wrote it he was in a thoroughly unsatisfactory position there was a confused welter of the most various hypotheses the priority of mark which had had earlier champions in copa store Graz, and herder was now maintained by creedner and lachman who saw in matthew a combination of the logia document with mark the primitive gospel hypothesis of eichhorn according to which the first three gospels went back to a common source not identical with any of them had been somewhat discredited there had been much discussion and various modifications of griesbach's dependence theory according to which mark was pieced together out of matthew and luke and schleiermacher's degascent theory which saw the primary material not in a gospel but in unconnected notes from these collections of narrative passages were afterwards formed which in the post-apostolic period coalesced into continuous descriptions of the life of jesus such as the three which have been preserved in our synoptic gospels in this matter strauss is a skeptical eclectic in the main he may be said to combine griesbach's theory of the secondary origin of mark with schleiermacher's degascent theory the latter answering to his method of treating the sections separately but whereas schleiermacher had used the plan of john's gospel as a framework into which to fit the independent narratives strauss's rejection of the fourth gospel left him without any means of connecting the sections he makes a point indeed of sharply emphasizing this want of connection and it was just this that made his work appear so extreme the synoptic discourses like the johannine are composite structures created by later tradition out of sayings which originally belonged to different times and circumstances arranged under certain leading ideas so as to form connected discourses the sermon on the mount the discourse at the sending forth of the twelve the great parable discourse the polemic against the pharisees have all been gradually formed like geological deposits so far as the original juxtaposition may be supposed to have been here and there preserved matthew is doubtless the most trustworthy authority for it says strauss in one passage quote, from the comparison which we have been making we can already see that the hard grit of these sayings of jesus has not indeed been dissolved by the flood of oral tradition but they have often been washed away from their original positions and like rolling pebbles have been deposited in places to which they do not properly belong and moreover we find this distinction between the first three evangelists viz that matthew is a skilful collector who while he is far from having been able always to give the original connection has at least known how to bring related passages aptly together whereas in the other two many fragmentary sayings have been left exactly where chance had deposited them which was generally in the interstices between the larger masses of discourse luke indeed has in some cases made an effort to give them an artistic setting which is however by no means a satisfactory substitute for the natural connection it is in his criticism of the parables that strauss is most extreme he starts out from the assumption that they have mutually influenced one another and that those which may possibly be genuine 
have only been preserved in a secondary form in the parable of the marriage supper of the king's son for example he confidently assumes that the conduct of the invited guests who finally ill-treated and slew the messengers and the question why the guest is not wearing a wedding garment are secondary features how external he supposes the connection of the narratives to be is clear from the way in which he explains the juxtaposition of the story of the transfiguration with the quote, discourse while descending the mountain close quote. they have he says really nothing to do with one another the disciples on one occasion asked jesus about the coming of elijah as forerunner elijah also appears in the story of the transfiguration accordingly tradition simply grouped the transfiguration and the discourse together under the heading elijah and later on manufactured a connection between them the tendency of the work to purely critical analysis the ostentatious avoidance of any positive expression of opinion and not least the manner of regarding the synoptists as mere bundles of narratives and discourses make it difficult indeed strictly speaking impossible to determine strauss's own distinctive conception of the life of jesus to discover what he really thinks is moving behind the curtain of myth according to the view taken in regard to this point his work becomes either a negative or a positive life of jesus there are for instance a number of incidental remarks which contain the suggestion of a positive construction of the life of jesus if they were taken out of their context and brought together they would yield a picture which would have points of contact with the latest eschatological view strauss however deliberately restricts his positive suggestions to these few detached remarks he follows out no line to its conclusion each separate problem is indeed considered and light is thrown upon it from various quarters with much critical skill but he will not venture on a solution of any of them sometimes when he thinks he has gone too far in the way of positive suggestion he deliberately wipes it all out again with some expression of skepticism as to the duration of the ministry he will not even offer a vague conjecture as to the connection of certain events nothing can according to him be known since the johannine outline cannot be accepted and the synoptists arrange everything with an eye to analogies and association of ideas though they flattered themselves that they were giving a chronologically arranged narrative from the contents of its narratives however and from the monotonous recurrence of certain formulae of connection it is evident that no clear view of an organically connected whole can be assumed to be present in their work we have no fixed points to enable us to reconstruct even a measure of chronological order especially interesting is his discussion of the title son of man in the saying the son of man is lord also of the sabbath day from matthew chapter twelve verse eight the expression might according to strauss simply denote man in other passages one gets the impression that jesus spoke of the son of man as a supernatural person quite distinct from himself but identified with the messiah this is the most natural explanation for the passage in matthew chapter ten verse twenty three where he promises the disciples in sending them forth that they shall not have gone over the cities of israel before the son of man shall come here 
Jesus speaks of the Messiah as if he himself were his forerunner. These sayings would, therefore, fall in the first period, before he knew himself to be the Messiah. Strauss does not suspect the significance of this incidental remark. It contains the germ of the solution of the problem of the Son of Man, on the lines of Johannes Weiss. But immediately skepticism triumphs again. How can we tell, asks Strauss, where the title Son of Man is genuine in the sayings of Jesus, and where it has been inserted without special significance, merely from habit? Not less insoluble, in his opinion, is the question regarding the point of time at which Jesus claimed the messianic dignity for himself. Strauss remarks, quote, Whereas in John, Jesus remains constant in his avowal, his disciples and followers constant in their conviction, that he is the Messiah. In the synoptics, on the other hand, there are, so to speak, relapses to be observed, so that, in the case of the disciples and the people generally, the conviction of Jesus' messiahship expressed on earlier occasions, sometimes in the course of the narrative, disappears again and gives place to a much lower view of him, and even Jesus himself, in comparison with his earlier unambiguous declaration, is more reserved on later occasions. Close quote. The account of the confession of the messiahship at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus pronounces Peter blessed because of his confession, and at the same time forbids the twelve to speak of it, is unintelligible, since according to this same gospel, his messiahship had been mooted by the disciples on several previous occasions, and had been acknowledged by the demoniacs. The synoptists, therefore, contradict themselves. Then there are the further cases in which Jesus forbids the making known of his messiahship without any reason whatever. It would, no doubt, be historically possible to assume that it only gradually dawned upon him that he was the Messiah, in any case not until after his baptism by John, as otherwise he would have to be supposed to have made a pretense upon that occasion, and that as often as the thought that he might be the Messiah was aroused in others by something that occurred and was suggested to him from without, he was immediately alarmed at hearing spoken loud and definitively, that which he himself had scarcely dared to cherish as a possibility, or in regard to which he had only lately attained to a clear conviction. From these suggestions one thing is evident, namely, that for Strauss the messianic consciousness of Jesus was an historical fact, and is not to be referred, as has sometimes been supposed, to myth. To assert that Strauss dissolved the life of Jesus into myth is, in fact, an absurdity, which, however often it may be repeated by people who have not read his book, or who have read it only superficially, does not become any less absurd by repetition. To come to detail, Jesus thought of his messiahship, according to Strauss, in the form that he, although of human parentage, should after his earthly life be taken up into heaven, and thence should come again to bring in his kingdom. Quote, As, moreover, in the higher Jewish theology, immediately after the time of Jesus, the idea of the pre-existence of the Messiah was present, the conjecture naturally suggests itself that it was also present at the time when Jesus' thoughts were being formed, and that consequently, if he once began to think of himself as the Messiah, 
he might also have referred to himself this feature of the messianic conception whether jesus had been initiated as paul was into the wisdom of the schools in such a way that he could draw this conception from it is no doubt open to question Close quote. in his treatment of the eschatology strauss makes a valiant effort to escape from the dilemma either spiritual or political in regard to the messianic plans of jesus and to make the eschatological expectation intelligible as one which did not set its hopes upon human aid but on divine intervention this is one of the most important contributions to a real understanding of the eschatological problem sometimes one almost seems to be reading johannes weiss as for example when strauss explains that jesus could promise his followers that they should sit on thrones without thinking of a political revolution because he expected a reversal of present conditions to be brought about by god and referred this judicial authority and kingly rule to the time of the palagenesia jesus therefore certainly expected to restore the throne of david and with his disciples to rule over a people freed from political bondage and in this expectation he did not set his hopes upon the sword of human followers luke chapter twenty two verse thirty eight matthew chapter twenty six verse fifty two but upon the legions of angels which his heavenly father could give him matthew chapter twenty six verse fifty three when he speaks of the coming of his messianic glory it is with angels and heavenly powers that he surrounds himself matthew chapter sixteen verse twenty seven chapter twenty four verse thirty and following chapter twenty five verse thirty one before the majesty of the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven the nations will submit without striking a blow and at the sound of the angel's trumpet blast will with the dead who shall then arise range themselves before him and his disciples for judgment all this jesus did not propose to bring about by any arbitrary action of his own but left it to his heavenly father who alone knew the right moment for this catastrophic change mark chapter thirteen verse thirty two to give him the signal of his coming and he did not waver in his faith even when death came upon him before its realization anyone who shrinks from adopting this view of the messianic background of jesus plans because he fears by doing so to make jesus a visionary enthusiast must remember how exactly these hopes corresponded to the long-cherished messianic expectation of the jews and how easily on the supernaturalistic assumptions of the period and among a people which preserved so strict an isolation as the jews an ideal which was in itself fantastic if it were the national ideal and had some true and good features could take possession of the mind even of one who was not inclined to fanaticism one of the principal proofs that the preaching of jesus was eschatology conditioned is the last supper says strauss quote, when he concluded the celebration with the saying i will not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine until i drink it new with you in my father's kingdom he would seem to have expected that in the messianic kingdom the passover would be celebrated with peculiar solemnity therefore in assuring them that they shall next partake of the feast not in the present age but in the new era he evidently expects that within a year's time 
the pre-messianic dispensation will have come to an end, and the messianic age will have begun. Close quote. But it must be admitted, Strauss immediately adds, that the definite assurance which the evangelists put into his mouth may, after all, only have been in reality an expression of pious hope. In a similar way, he qualifies his other statements regarding the eschatological ideas of Jesus by recalling that we cannot determine the part which the expectations of primitive Christianity may have had in molding these sayings. Thus, for example, the opinions which he expresses on the great parousia discourse in Matthew chapter 24 are extremely cautious. The detailed prophecies regarding the second coming, which the synoptists put into the mouth of Jesus, cannot be derived from Jesus himself. The question suggests itself, however, whether he did not cherish the hope and make the promise that he would one day appear in glory as the Messiah. Quote, if in any period of his life he held himself to be the Messiah, and that there was a period when he did so, there can be no doubt. And if he described himself as the Son of Man, he must have expected the coming in the clouds which Daniel had ascribed to the Son of Man. But it may be questioned whether he thought of this as an exaltation which should take place even in his lifetime, or as something which was only to take place after his death. Utterances like Matthew chapter 10 verse 23, chapter 16 verse 28 rather suggest the former. But the possibility remains that later, when he had begun to feel that his death was certain, his connection took the latter form, and that Matthew chapter 26 verse 64 was spoken in this view. Close quote. Thus, even for Strauss, the problem of the Son of Man is already the central problem in which are focused all the questions regarding the messiahship and eschatology. From all this, it may be seen how strongly he had been influenced by Rimarus, whom, indeed, he frequently mentions. It would be still more evident if he had not obscured his historical views by constantly bringing the mythological explanation into play. The thought of the supernatural realization of the kingdom of God must also, according to Strauss, be the starting point of any attempt to understand Jesus' attitude towards the law and the Gentiles, so far as that is possible in view of the conflicting data. The conservative passages must carry most weight. They need not necessarily fall at the beginning of his ministry, because it is questionable whether the hypothesis of a later period of increasing liberality in regard to the law and the Gentiles can be made probable. There would be more chance of proving that the conservative sayings are the only authentic ones, for unless all the indications are misleading, the terminus a quo for this change of attitude is the death of Jesus. He no doubt looked forward to the abolition of the law and the removal of the barriers between Jew and Gentile, but only in the future kingdom. Remarks Strauss, quote, If that be so, the difference between the views of Jesus and of Paul consisted only in this, that while Jesus expected these limitations to fall away when, at his second coming, the earth should be renewed, Paul believed himself justified in doing away with them in consequence of the first coming of the Messiah upon the still unregenerated earth. The eschatological passages are therefore the most authentic of all. If there is anything historic about Jesus, 
it is his assertion of the claim that in the coming kingdom he would be manifested as the son of man on the other hand in the predictions of the passion and resurrection we are on quite uncertain ground the detailed statements regarding the manner of the catastrophe place it beyond doubt that we have here vaticinia ex eventu otherwise the despair of the disciples when the events occurred could not be explained yet it is possible that jesus had a provision of his death perhaps the resolve to die was essential to his conception of the messiahship and he was not forced thereto by the circumstances this we might be able to determine with certainty if we had more exact information regarding the conception of the suffering messiah in contemporary jewish theology which is however not available we do not even know whether the conception had ever existed in judaism Quote, in the new testament it almost looks as if no one among the jews had ever thought of a suffering or dying messiah Close quote. the conception can however certainly be found in later passages of rabbinic literature the question is therefore insoluble we must be content to work with possibilities the result of a full discussion of the resolve to suffer and the significance attached to the suffering is summed up by strauss in the following sentences quote, in view of these considerations it is possible that jesus might by a natural process of thought have come to see how greatly such a catastrophe would contribute to the spiritual development of his disciples and in accordance with natural conceptions interpreted in the light of some old testament passages might have arrived at the idea of an atoning power in his messianic death at the same time the explicit utterance which the synoptists attribute to jesus describing his death as an atoning sacrifice might well belong rather to the system of thought which grew up after the death of jesus and the saying which the fourth gospel puts into his mouth regarding the relation of his death to the coming of the paraclete might seem to be a prophecy after the event so that even in these sayings of jesus regarding the purpose of his death it is necessary to distinguish between the particular and the general strauss's life of jesus has a different significance for modern theology from that which it had for his contemporaries for them it was a work which made an end of miracle as a matter of historical belief and gave the mythological explanation its due we however find in it also an historical aspect of a positive character inasmuch as the historic personality which emerges from the mist of myth is a jewish claimant of the messiahship whose world of thought is purely eschatological strauss is therefore no mere destroyer of untenable solutions but also the prophet of a coming advance in knowledge it was however his own fault that his merit in this respect was not recognized in the nineteenth century because in his life of jesus for the german people from eighteen sixty four where he undertook to draw a positive historical picture of jesus he renounced his better opinions of eighteen thirty five eliminated eschatology and instead of the historic jesus portrayed the jesus of liberal theology End of chapter 8